Let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear. She made her first attempt at Coca Bun. Coca I can't say it. Thank you. She went to the beach. It's the Clear as Mud podcast, where we look at the funny and not so funny sides of bad communication. Join us as we ask why is it so hard to get your message across? Take it away, Lawrence and Ray. Welcome to Clear as Mud, Episode 2. Today, we're going to talk about everything from 20th century South American politics to a David and Goliath struggle against big tech to making death likable. Meanwhile, our chat with an expert is on my favorite topic, influencers, and why people love them. Let's start the discussion with our look at communication failures across the globe, the good, the bad, and the hilarious. Okay, so this week I have an example of a of a good communication. It's in fact, you know, one of the classic cases, which is you know, which people seldom talk about. But it's, it's regarding this uh, dictator uh, by the name of Augusto Pinochet from Chile. So this is uh, in 1998, October the fifth. That's where the Chileans, you know, have to come out and vote, you know, whether to let Pinochet continue as their as their president. Now, what happens is that he has governed Chile for 15 years, uh, quite oppressively, you know, with, you know, police violence, torture, rape, execution, etc, etc, etc. But because he was under international pressure to step down, he wanted, obviously, to continue to rule. So he thought that maybe, you know, he could have a referendum. So October the 5th, 1998 is the day where the Chileans, you know, would come out and vote in the referendum whether he should continue. Now, of course, the Chilean people, you know, don't like him, right? So they, and, and, and they, but, but you need somebody to be able to master the troops or master the population to come out and vote, right? Um, now, the opposition at that time was in disarray. So there were no single opposition leader, you know, to go up against uh, Pinochet. Now, fortunately, they have a very creative person, a creative director in advertising agency called Eugenio Garcia, right? So Eugenio Garcia and a few of his other creative directors got together and said, guys, you know, this is one opportunity we have to get rid of a dictator. And this is the only example I, I can think of where an advertising has been so effective in removing uh, a dictator, in fact, right? And people often say that, oh, advertising is not effective. Advertising is often used as a medium. I would argue that this is not true. Now, what's clever in this case is also the the Augusto Pinochet's party, you know, did not have a good campaign. So they cleverly thought, or what they think was clever, that uh, we'll give the opposition uh, party or the opposition member only 15 minutes, okay? And we put the, the telecast of their ads late in the night, about, you know, 11 p.m. Uh, but what they didn't figure out, though, is, of course, the Chileans sleep late, right, Ray? So they sleep late. So 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock is like a prime time to them. 
And because it was the only opposition then, the only opposition ad, everybody sort of woke up, or not woke up, everybody sort of turned on the television to actually watch uh, this ad that uh, Eugenio created, right? And he came up with the, the campaign that says, you know, basically, look, Chile, the joy is coming. So that's their tagline. And they're selling hope. They're selling democracy. They're selling a chance for the Chilean people to move forward and say, this is our future. We should not waste it. Come out and vote no to uh, Augusto Pinochet. And they became very successful. So in fact, it actually worked. In fact, the, the, it was actually made into a, the whole incident was made into a, uh, into a film which was nominated for the uh, 2013 Foreign Language Film in the Academy Awards in 2013. So it's a great, it's a great case study, right? Yeah, it worked, didn't it? Yeah. And what I like about it is the, their advertising campaign had the positive attack. Correct. Like you were saying, well, it's it, advertising is finally, you know, topples a dictator. Well, yes. most political <laughs> advertising that you would call effective, unfortunately, tends to be criticism of the opposition. Yep. Of course, they couldn't do that in this case, could they? Because if they had said Correct. bad things about Pinochet in their ads, they'd probably be taken out and shot. So instead, they said, you know, yes, hope, yes. no, you know, they juxtapose the word no with this rainbow and saying, oh, it's hope. You know, this is a this yeah. is a good thing. And that also reminds me of something else that I know we've talked about, you know, in class before, Lawrence, but the whole argument of creativity versus budget. Yep. And I suspect they didn't spend a whole lot of money on this campaign. Yep. But that having a small budget probably helped them to think, okay, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to be creative? We've only got 15 minutes. You know, he has 24 hours, 23 hours and 45 minutes all every day to say what he wants to say. We've only got 15 minutes a day. How are we going to do that? And they just pulled it together and bang, you know, it worked. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good Isn't example. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? So so the government, the government, I guess, still has the, has the whole day, right, to pump up their propaganda. And the opposition only have 15 minutes, right? And yet, you know, mm. they won the day mm. at the end. Yep, the power of a creative message. Now, I've got a bad one for this week. As you know, Lawrence, I am not a fan of Mr. Mark Zuckerberg and his amoral approach to business. I don't believe he's deliberately evil, but he has no empathy and he doesn't care what rights get trampled as long as his tech properties can continue to grow. And he doesn't take responsibility for anything. So many companies exploit the, this lack of principles in order to to uh, spike their get-rich schemes uh, via Facebook advertising. And when I say get rich quick, it's the advertiser and Facebook who are the ones who are getting rich quick, not the people who uh, click on the ads. Now, here in Australia, there have been scores of ads for fake cryptocurrency investment companies and other similar schemes, and they use a photo of a famous, successful Australian who, of course, has not lent their name or their image to these scams. And I'll link to uh, some of these examples in the, uh, in the show note. What's happened over time, Zuckerberg and other Facebook spokespeople have repeatedly said there's nothing they can do to stop it. Well, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission has taken Meta, Facebook's parent company, to court, and they're arguing that, in fact, Facebook does have control 
over the publication of this sort of thing. The ACCC said it can point to more than $100 million, Australian dollars, being fleeced from Australians via these ads. So they're now taking them to court, and if convicted, Meta could be fined millions of dollars. And it's not clear whether that's millions of dollars per ad or just one fine to cover all the breaches. Meanwhile, Meta has reported it's cooperating with Australian authorities to make sure nothing like this happens in the future, but, you know, watch this space. But Lawrence, I think this is a classic example of Facebook slash Meta's complete denial of responsibility for mm. anything bad that happens on its platform. And to me, that's very unclear communication. I mean, I think Zuckerberg's in the back room counting all that ad revenue yes. and how this plays into their aim to keep us always scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Uh, Lawrence, what thoughts do you have about that? Yeah, I think, I think um, I mean, there's the cost as well is to those people who got scammed, for example, right? So people losing hundreds and thousands of dollars. And of, and of course, the celebrities' reputation also get muddied as well. I think Dick Smith is involved as well, uh, and a couple of other people as well. So it, and that is... It's only playing out in Australia. I'm sure you know, Facebook is doing the same thing or the people behind this cryptocurrency scam is using Facebook in as a platform in other countries as well. So that's that's a cost to that as well, to the people who, who gets who got scammed. But the other thing is also, you know, remember last week we talked about fake news and deep fakes, you know, how people are becoming uh, people are becoming more cynical and so forth. This adds to that bucket of misinformation and and increasing the trustworthiness of people towards um you know towards the internet. So I think it's going to get worse, Ray. But I I think I think if you are a giant company like like Facebook, you must take responsibility because it's free to air television. For example, they have they have code of conduct you know, which they have to adhere to, and if you do not adhere to those code of conduct, your license can be pulled away by the government. Now this doesn't happen. Okay, uh, in social media and the internet, and that fundamentally is the problem because nobody controls it. It's it's a sort of cowboy situation, I guess. Still, yeah, I mean, I historically am not a fan of uh, regulation, but I have come to believe over the years that big tech companies like Facebook, Google, and whatever, they need to be regulated. You know, if you look back at it, history. It is only when regulation has come in that things have changed. You know, with the oil companies and the railroad companies back in the early 20th century, even Microsoft, they had untrammeled growth. And then ever since um, regulations were put in place to stop them in some of the monopolistic situations, you know, they're still successful, still a big company, but have had to operate in a, you know, in a fairer way. So, I think it's coming. I think regulation is coming. I don't know what form it's going to take. I don't know which country it's going to originate in, but at least, you know, I believe something like that has to happen eventually. And meanwhile, these sorts of scams are just going to continue to proliferate around the internet. All right. I'm glad we've got the format we've set up, you know, the good, the bad, the hilarious, because we can always finish this segment on a lighter note. And so you picked a classic from Augusto Pinochet's Downfall. I've got another classic that I want to talk about as my hilarious segment. And it's a classic that we also discuss in class. <laughs> it's called Dumb Ways to Die. 
and it was a campaign that was produced on behalf of the Melbourne Rail Network. They had problems with people getting killed at level crossings because in Victoria, you know, people are actually able to walk across the tracks or drive across tracks, which doesn't happen in, in uh, some other places. But they wanted to reduce the number of people dying. And so they went to a this big ad agency who I think could see, you know, awards, if not specific dollar signs in their eyes, and uh, took this on, I believe it was McCann Erickson. And they produced a campaign for them that just became really still probably the most successful viral public information campaign of all time. And they did this by making fun of death. So they created these little jelly bean type characters and this catchy little song called Dumb Ways to Die. And again, we'll have some examples in the show notes. And all these dumb things happened to these little jelly bean characters, you know, like they stuck their um, fork in a socket and they let a serial killer inside and they super glued their mouth shut and all that sort of thing. And then right at the end, they say, oh, and other dumb ways to die are trying to cross the tracks at a railway crossing and uh, and all that sort of thing. So it started out with this video, actually a three-minute video with the whole song in it. And amazingly, it just took off on the internet and everybody was sharing it around via YouTube and, and other platforms. And people were actually watching this whole three-minute long video. And oh, it's now had, I don't know how many, hundreds of millions of views. And then they went to Cannes and they won the most awards for a single campaign ever. So I think it's 30-odd awards or something like that. And it was, I guess, what I find, you know, hilarious about it, if, not to make light of death, but that's what they're doing. The whole campaign revolved around, instead of making people feel fearful, and that's why they wouldn't do the wrong thing, it makes fun of death. And so you kind of laugh, ha, 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 you know, that's a dumb way to die. And then, oh... Okay, I suppose I should be safer around level crossings. What's interesting about this campaign is that you don't hear a lot of follow-up in terms of <clears throat> what the actual aim was, which was to reduce the number of deaths at level crossings. Some I've read, you know, some articles on this where people say, "Oh, yes, it actually went down by 10%," and then there's some other research that says, "Well, actually the number of deaths at level crossings went up after the campaign went off. And as you would know, Lawrence, we always show this great segment from the Gruen transfer where Todd Sampson and Russell Howcroft get into this huge argument about the effectiveness of it. And Russell Howcroft, who you know work, has worked at major ad agencies and whatnot, and he said it this thing works even if more even if the you know death rate goes up. The campaign works, and then they had this huge argument about, you know, that no, if it if it doesn't do what it actually set out to do in the first place, then you can't say that it was a success. And it's a really interesting uh, campaign that raises all kinds of points. But I suppose the the absolute success of this is by creating something that's so shareable. They were able to make a very powerful statement in terms of the virality of the message. What did you like best about Dumb Ways to Die, Lawrence? Yeah, I, I, I think you made a very good point. It's so shareable. And this is the age of the internet, right? So they just pass the links on 
to all their friends and so forth, and they can sing along. And I think there are different variations of this over over the years, isn't it, Ray? So many different. I mean, they got games as well. I think they have then pajamas and you know. Even though this was done, I don't know, probably close to ten years ago originally, a lot of platforms that weren't even created back then. They've got so they've got an Instagram account. They've got a TikTok account that was started up last year. So the campaign is still running, and yes. I'm not sure who's funding it. Yes, uh, but yes, it uh, it lives on. It's the viral gift that keeps on giving. But also, if you think about it, it's really hard to sell a concept or to tell people especially the teenage boys, right, you know, not to run around, you know, at railway tracks because they will turn around and, and in fact, you might have the reverse effect if you were to play it straight because the teenage boys like to live dangerously and, you know, if you tell them don't do it, guess what, they will go and do it. So by doing it indirectly this way, I, it is effective. Now, the, the question then becomes, it sort of reminds me of that, Augusto Pinochet ad as well, the case study as well, where where the the campaign for the no, and that means to vote Augusto Pinochet out, uh, actually uses song and dance as well. And and it's very hard to sell a democracy concept. You know, how do you sell democracy as a concept to Chile many, many years ago? And the same thing here, how do you sell how do you sell death or the lack of death? So one way is in fact to be able to look at the funny side of things. And that, I think, is it's a common strategy that seems to work for those for these two case studies. And I, I think that's really the underlying success of this. The, you know, the, the message is, if you can make people laugh, then you can get your message across better than almost any other way. Like along the lines of what you were saying about young boys and not listening to messages, telling them terrible things or whatever, making them fearful. I remember this other campaign that ran a few years ago uh, here in Australia where they were trying to basically stop young boys hooning around and uh, driving too fast in city streets. And they you know, had a campaign where these yahoos were going past in their car and um, burning rubber and whatever. And then these p- women were sitting by the side of the road and they're waving their pinky, like, you know, as in, ha ha, he has a small penis. And, you know, a lot of people said that that was a lot more effective than showing the after effects of a car crash because they were going too fast or whatever. And look, I've got to be honest, I laughed at that campaign as well. So. Yeah, I think if you can make people laugh, whether it's through music or or other things, I think that's a really good way to get your message across. All right. Well, as I said, we will um, be including all of these different items that we've discussed in this segment in the show notes. Tell me why. Tell me why. And let's move on to the segment that I like to call Tell Me Why, and that's our expert interview. Now today, let's talk about influencers. Now, I have many questions, so many questions about influencers, and channeling my inner two-year-old, most of them are why. Why are they even a thing? Why do we spend so much time peering into their lives? Why do people believe influencers more than brands? Now, with my business hat on, 
I would say that this is bad marketing because I think it's an indictment of brands that they're not creating digital content that engages people. And it's been left to strangers essentially to pick up the slack. Now here to help us get to the bottom of all of this is our expert guest today, influencer expert, Natalie Levesque. Natalie's a PhD graduate in marketing at the University of Laval Business School in Quebec. Her research focuses on digital social media and more specifically on the engagement relationship between influencers and their followers. She has degrees in marketing and communications from the University of Quebec in Montreal and the University of Montreal. She's been teaching for more than five years at Laval, and she's also founded her own digital marketing agency, and she plans influencer campaigns for various startups. Now, Natalie, many thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So firstly, <laughs> why, as ordinary people, do we spend so much time scrolling through our phones, peering into the lives of strangers, who appear to have a wonderful life. What is it that makes people follow the lives of influencers? There's a lot of reason of uh, following influencer, and there are also a lot of reason, uh, there are also a lot of type of influencer. We have nano and micro influencer who have less than 1,100 followers. They are expert in the subject. They are really close to their community and have a high engagement rate. We also have a macro and mega influencer who have more than a million uh, followers. But they are more on lifestyle content and they, they are not uh, look like an expert in any topic. And people uh, follow them for the glamour, for living their life <laughs> through the screen. Of course, this type of influencer have a big uh, reach because they have a lot of followers, but their engagement rate is really low because followers know that there is not Kim Kardashian who personally answer to uh, their DM. They mm. know that, but if I am following an influencer with 30,000 followers in the fitness industry, I will follow him because he's, he's an expert, he's looking authentic to my eyes, and I will, I will be more engaged and searching for his advice in this specific area. But if I follow um, Tom Brady, of course, it's not for the same reason. So there's a lot of reason why following, depending on the type of influencer, and there's a lot of uh, voyeurism on social media too. Right. Okay. Voyeurism. That's an interesting idea. So I don't know. We just like to get an insight into the lives of these famous people. Is that is that what drives us? Yes, we are all a little bit jealous about our neighbor. And in the, the sphere of social media, we are connect each together and we have access to the everyday life of 
sometimes ordinary people like nano influencer, but also with the biggest star and by days ago, the only manner to have access to this celebrity it was like in magazine or television. Now we are close and you know we we develop a parasocial relationship with the, the, the influencer and the, this give us a statue of trust, especially the smaller influencers. And by dint of following the life of an influencer every day and every day, we develop a strong engagement. And we feel that the influencer knows us personally. Mm -hmm. This is real because it's supported by the literature of parasocial relationship, but it's also true. I saw it in, in, uh, in my circle of friends that sometimes uh, people told me, yeah, Jerry told that. It's true. It's true. Okay. But what I said to all people, because just to make a point, influencer is my expertise, my search file. But I, I don't think it's the seventh wonders of the world. As in anything, they are good and bad. So I think as a, as a follower, we have a responsibility. We have the responsibility if the influencer match our values. And not just follow to follow because the influencer is so much popular yeah we we have a responsibility as a follower and and do not just follow to follow because the the influencer is so popular we have to ask ourselves if the this influencer brings some concrete things in our life and if they match our values okay so the values are important because i know some of the research that we've done in this area they talk about how people trust influencers you talked about trust they trust them even more than uh, their friends and family and certainly more than brands there was a study from musefine for example recently that showed 92 percent of consumers trust influencers more than ads or even traditional celebrity endorsement. And another study said that 63% of consumers trust influencers more than brand managers. And then a study by Collective Bias showed that 3% of people would buy a celebrity endorsed product, which is sort of the way that things traditionally have been advertised. And But 30% would buy from a non-celebrity influencer. So why mm -hmm. is it that these, I don't know, strangers, these unknown mm -hmm. people are so well trusted and it, to the point where if they endorse a product, people are more likely to buy mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 90% of customers trust more uh, the opinion of a person they, they think reliable than an official uh, media source or a company. And we call it, the best friend effect. So let me give you an example. If you see an ad saying the best pizza in town, you will not necessarily believe it. Let's say that you go on a trip advice 
advisor and you read good recommendation, you maybe say, oh, it's look, it's look right, but not 100% sure. But if friend or influencer that you follow and you're engaged with this influencer, say that it, this restaurant made the best pizza ever, you will believe it and you will plan to taste it. Moreover, you will plan to make a story when you are in this restaurant and tag the influencer in question, tag the restaurant. Yeah, it, it, this is the best friend effect. It could be good, like in this in this case, it's it's a pizza. It's not that much that much um, big thing. But when it comes to person who improvise as a life coach, I don't know if you say that in English, life coach person who, who want to help you yes, to, to have a better mental health and everything, this could be particularly dangerous for young followers because they are more influenceable. So that's a um, remind on what I said before. Uh, we really, we, we have an education to, to do to young uh, followers. That could be a part of stuff that they, they learn at school because influencer, it's everywhere. Now we, we, we also have pet influencer. Have you seen this phenomenon? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> like a, a little cutie dog with two, three million followers. And the, and this, the, the, um, represent brand and they make wow. money. Yeah. And there is another trend super. I don't, I really don't like it. And it's unethic and it's babies and influencer, like babies who have uh, and friends are parent and the people know them from their birth and maybe at seven years old you will have a million followers but this baby never be asked to be a public figure like this so as i said as in anything there are good and bad but yeah we are such involved with stranger but they are not that stranger because we have access when we we look at stories every day we know the routine of the mm. person so it's like it's like uh, a friend so is that why we make are able to make that leap like what I, what I struggle to understand is it's one thing to say okay I will fill my time now that I have this smartphone and I will fill it with watching people who are actually strangers, but I feel I come to know them. Mm -hmm. But then how do they make that leap to, I want to buy whatever clothes that baby is wearing or, or mm -hmm. toys for my pet that, they, you know, that, how did this whole commercial angle mm -hmm. um, develop? Mm -hmm. This can be explained by social identity theory who are related to the self-concept. Um, people who, are, who have a strong engagement with a follower and his community will be motivated to uh, behave the way 
that shows their belonging to the group and the influencer. So thus, if my favorite influencer were this brand, it is cool and I want to be cool like him and I want and I will buy buy it. And we saw oh um I don't know if you read this, uh, read about this type of marketing, but we call it evangelist marketing. Right. It's when person believe with so much fever in a brand or human brand, like influencer, that he, he doesn't, he, he became an ambassador for his influencer. He, literally, he is an influencer of his influencer. Yeah. Right. It, 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 it's it's like uh, people who love Apple, they are desensibilized by the price. They just want to have the brand because it, 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 it has a value to their eyes. It helps their self-concept <laughs> to mm. uh, present themselves in the way they want to be uh, seen by others. Right. Right. Okay. Now, one thing that I struggle with is I understand what you're saying about how, you know, particularly the nano influencers sort of feel like they're a friend and you, and you see their day-to-day life and all that. But why do people who carefully curate their photo angles, you know, like all these lifestyle bloggers or um, influencers who, you know, are at the gym, but they're, you know, they spend hours getting exactly the right angle so that they don't look fat and they look completely different in these photos than they actually do in real life. Mm-hmm. Why is it that people say relate to these people and, and actually use words like authentic to describe them when there is all this artifice going on in the background to make mm-hmm. you look a certain way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact remains that Instagram, it's an image platform and everyone put itself in his best to sell dream or follow dreams. But deep down, we, we all know that it's not totally authentic. And one thing it's good, actually, with the, the diversity of uh, social media it's, for example, TikTok. TikTok is just short, creative video. There is not aestheticism like on Instagram. So uh, I think we, we have to choose also the, the type of content that we want and the thinking. And yes, of course, on Instagram, <laughs> there's a lot of fake person but let me say that increasingly influence marketing is regulate and they must disclose their partnership and there is a tendency to to mention no filter and to look like in the real light like no makeup to the mm-hmm. followers this this is a, a big trend actually of course there's a lot of influencer who will continue to show their body and because some followers want to to follow this type of influencer but let me 
introduce you with an emerging new trend of police followers. They scrutinize Instagram account and they denounce fake accounts or uh, which do not respect the legislation. So in my mind, that's comfort me that followers now are more conscientious and want to have the, a real real person a legal procedure don't want to mm-hmm. they, they want the the they 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 urge for the transparency which is a good thing right okay can you think of any examples of that i mean it can be a canadian example that's fine <laughs> Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, during the, um, the holidays, a bunch of influencers from Quebec take a plan, Sunwing plan, and go to Tulum in Mexico. They make a big, big, big party on, on the air. They smoke. They, they don't have their, um, their, their mask and take their own alcohol. This is really gross, and I I don't endorse this uh, behavior, of course. And on Instagram, we we have uh, in in Quebec, we have a page and an account who follow all the influencer celebrity, mm-hmm. and and like a paparazzi, but to uh, to to demonstrate bad thing that they that they do or just to educate the uh, Instagrammer user uh they cover all the story because it's it, it i know you 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 probably hear about this story because the new york post and also the mm-hmm. guardian i think talk about it i was oh my god my country what happened with my country (laughs) (laughs) no it's not just your country let me assure you (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) so uh yeah and this page uh, report that some influencer in this plane because there was a hundred of passenger but like 50 15 influencer and the media take the take the the moment to spin on the the influencer uh, term, and this is bad because some influencers were really on really shocked because the, their their own image were affected by the behavior of fifteen percent. <laughs> mm, mm. So um, during the this uh, saga, the page make a story and say. Oh, those two influencers get more than 50 uh, followers in a day. So they report that they buy followers. Right. So this is good. And this is an example of policy uh, followers. Is that clear? <laughs> yes, that example you gave, I know you also talk about that in that a, uh, an article that you published recently. And we'll include a link to that article uh, in our show notes. Like with our first episode's interview, our discussion with Natalie went for much longer than originally planned, going on to discuss the psychological damage caused by influencers, more about the rise of TikTok, how brands can work effectively with influencers, and the future for influencer marketing. 
We're going to publish the second part of this interview in a future episode, because there's still so much interesting stuff that we talked about. But for now, we're going to tie a bow on this episode and encourage you to tune in next time when we talk to the world's foremost authority on another of my favorite topics. And when I say favorite, I mean I hate it. Reality television. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Clear as Mud on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review, as well as asking you to check out the show notes for this episode at clear-as-mud.org, where you'll find other examples of communication that is clear as mud. See you next time. This podcast is owned and created by Clear as Mud Productions. Continued listening to this podcast may result in uncontrollable laughter, eye-rolling, and expanded consciousness. Please see your doctor if pain persists.